Welcome to TBA Now. I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah. I am blessed to know the many extraordinary people who are connected to our congregational community. This podcast is an opportunity to get to know who they are and what they do. Sharon Inoue is disarmingly warm and open-hearted. Her eyes glow with a unique kindness. Perhaps it's not an accident in that case that she is a world-renowned geriatrician. How lucky for all of us. Sharon's also a brilliant research scientist, determined, focused, and utterly committed to improving health and quality of life for older persons and their families. Come join us for a great conversation. Sharon Inouye, welcome to TBA Now. I am so happy that you're joining on this podcast. So delighted to be here, Rabbi. You are a member of TBA, and you've been around for a little while. How did you find your way to Beth Avodah? Yeah, so we moved from Connecticut to Boston in 2005. So going on 17 years, Rabbi, but definitely it's been 16 years. And I remember very early on after we moved, we wanted to find a new synagogue. And we came to meet with you in your office. And I just remember we fell in love with TBA that day, and it we've never looked back. It's been one of the m- most wonderful decisions we've made after we moved. It's just been a wonderful congregation, and we were so impressed by the number of things that TBA does, and of course, with your leadership and your friendship and support of us over so many years. We are lucky to have you and your family here. You know, you are a very humble person. (laughs) And for folks who have never met uh, Sharon, uh, if if you Google her, you'll see that there's not a picture of her on the internet that is not smiling uh, with a very uh, strong warmth and open-heartedness, and which utterly and completely uh, defines you. So like you wouldn't know, for instance, I'm, I'm looking at my list here. I'm not even reading the accolades. I'm just reading like what it says about you. Sharon is the director of the Aging Brain Center at the Marcus Institute for Aging Research, Hebrew Senior Life in Boston. She holds the Milton and Shirley Levy Family Chair as a professor of medicine at Harvard Med School. Her research focuses on delirium and functional decline in hospitalized older parents, well, not parents, you know, there's a Freudian slip, patients, <laughs> resulting in more than 300 peer-reviewed original articles to date, which according to my scientist friends is ridiculously huge. <laughs> um, currently, she's the overall principal investigator of the successful aging after elective surgery study, uh, an $11 million program project on delirium funded by the National Institute on Aging, as well as other active research projects. And then essentially, I'll just say the last sentence of a five-paragraph article, Dr. Inouye is committed to improving health and quality of life 
for older persons and their families. Wow. <laughs> Sharon, what, what led you uh, to gerontology? Oh, so many things, right? Like so many strands when you look back kind of led me here. So first and foremost, my father was a physician and really my role model and hero. And so I wanted to be a doctor from my earliest memories, from age three. I remember mm. begging my parents when they said, Sharon, what do you want for your birthday present? I said, the doctor's kit. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, in those days in a traditional Japanese family, I could only get the nurse's kit or the teacher's oh. kit. Yeah. <laughs> so that made me want to be a doctor even, even more. Even more. <laughs> right. But jumping fast forward, you know, I considered a lot of other careers. I got very interested in music. I got very interested in English literature. But I always circled back to medicine, I think, from my father's influence. And when I finally had to make a decision about applying to medical school, I really felt, you know, the chance to heal and help patients and families really felt right to me. And then when I had to decide about my specialty, I actually had a really hard time deciding because I couldn't narrow it down. I loved all parts of medicine too much. And so I kept, instead of trying to narrow down <laughs> to select a specialty, I kept looking for fields that were broader and all-encompassing. And so finally, I decided, okay, let me just select internal medicine, you know, as my residency, because that, that feels really broad. So then I did my residency, and then you have to select in your second year what you're going to specialize in, and I couldn't decide again. And so then I ended up not deciding, and I served as a chief resident, and then I did a general medicine fellowship. And it was during that time where I realized it, it was almost backwards. I selected mm. a job in geriatrics, and I ended up loving it. And I realized that its broadness and its complexity and helping patients and helping families in really complex, difficult matters that mm. really suited me. And then I went backwards and got trained in geriatrics. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of a, a, a story of your life, right? You, you, mm -hmm. It's all about making these big circles and then slowly uh, mm -hmm. backing up into what feels like the right place. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I would assume, Sharon, that when you began to drill down on geriatrics, um, there weren't tons of people with you. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. In fact, I became a geriatrician before there was even a board examination in geriatrics. So geriatrics wasn't even recognized as a field of internal medicine yet. Which now is astonishing. What do you think that was about? What, in fact, to this day, it seems to me that there is, uh, and you've talked about this actually and how older patients have been treated during COVID. There's this attitude about aging 
patients and medical concerns that for mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. unknown reason is not taken seriously. Is that right? Is that right? Is that that's absolutely right. And I think that well, it even took a while for pediatrics to become a field. Of course, it did much earlier than geriatrics. But it's sort of the same sort of thinking, like, you know, now we all recognize, right, that pediatrics must be a field. There are so many things specific to children that require special training and knowledge and skills, right? But it's taken a long time for that same realization to come about geriatric medicine. And I would wager that there are even greater physiologic changes that distinguish someone who's 90 from someone who's 40 than between a child and an adult, you know? Sharon, what, like, what are a few of those things that you've, you've obviously had some time thinking about <laughs> these things? What are a few that immediately come to mind? Well, there are many age-specific diseases that tend to occur mostly in older adults, right? So things like Alzheimer's disease is primarily a disease of aging of older adults. There are many other conditions that are you only basically see in people over the age of 65. So conditions like temporal arteritis, you know, osteoarthritis or degenerative arthritis. There's a panoply of conditions. But even beyond that, there are so many metabolic changes that happen in our bodies that um, affect the way we metabolize drugs, the way we metabolize anesthetic agents, so that we have to be aware of adjusting not only dosages, but classes of medications we use in older adults. And so there is a lot of specialized learning and training, right, that needs to happen. The other thing is that, you know, people often need family support as they age. And that's very different, right, from your average 40-year-old. And so there needs to be training and skill in that area. And more often, there's end-of-life issues as well to contend with, and functional and cognitive decline to contend with. And so those are all areas that require, I think, special training and special skill in the physician. In your field as a geriatrician, that you just named something that one would say, well, that's 20 different doctor's visits to 20 different doctors. You know, there's uh, the pharmacologist, uh, there's the psychiatrist, there's the neurologist, there's the uh, rheumatologist. There's <laughs> endless. Yes. And when if you ask older people, like, what do you do during the day? They say, well, you know, I slept to doctor's <laughs> appointments. But, but I, 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 I sense that what you're suggesting is that a skilled geriatrician is able to handle not all of those things, but at least can... Yes. contextualize and uh, bring together a coherent, cohesive treatment plan. Absolutely. And I think it's really that getting away from that sub-sub-specialized approach that we have to medicine with this whole human approach 
that's so important. And that's what a geriatrician really strives to do. Which is such a balm for older folks because navigating 20 different, okay, I'm exaggerating, but <laughs> 10 different doctors, I don't think that's an exaggeration for yeah. older persons who's having any kind of health issues, yes. that it becomes so cumbersome so and true. so confusing. And without someone who is coordinating, you even sometimes have drugs being prescribed by three different doctors, some of which really contraindicate the others. That's so right. do you consider yourself as a geriatrician that that is still like a vanguard profession in the field of medicine? I think so. Yeah, I, I, I view myself on a pioneer as a pioneer in a great frontier. <laughs> in a sense. Yeah. And geriatricians, well, it's funny, right, that if you talk to geriatricians, you know, many, many people, and there have been studies that have looked at this, uh, Rabbi, that show that many people don't know what geriatricians are or what they do. And many people, many older adults, in fact, when you talk to them, they say, oh, no, I don't need a geriatrician, right? I, 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 I don't need one at all. And yet, I don't know a person who has a child who isn't clamoring to get a pediatrician for their yes, child, right? Absolutely. So I don't understand why older adults aren't clamoring to get the best care. So I'm hoping that will happen. And so in a way, our field, you know, we just... We're just not respected in the way we need to be, we should be. But on the other hand, it's also the field that has the highest satisfaction rates in all mm. of medicine. Really? So, right. Think? We're disrespected, but we're highly satisfied. <laughs> okay, so what's that about? <laughs> but I think the truth is that, you know, there is a selection bias. I think people who choose to go into the field, they love this field. They mm -hmm. love working with older adults and their families. And they love this whole human approach, maximizing function. The focus is not on cure of disease. It's how you learn to live maximally and optimally with chronic disease. And so the focus is very different, right, from most of medicine, but it's intensely satisfying you know, to focus on improving functioning and independence and problem solving. We're all very good problem solvers in geriatrics. Yeah. yeah. You know, I have so many questions on the larger <laughs> topic of geriatrics and what you're working on and dementia and delirium and Alzheimer's and the things that just freak out people. You know, I'm in my late 60s and... <laughs> You know, we start to think about these things in more than just a hypothetical way. And we start to hear about people who are our age or just a few years older who are dealing with, you know, I just talked to someone yesterday who was diagnosed with, is it seriotic arthritis? Oh, yes. And 69 years old, right? So just as you were describing, age brings with it a variety of really scary things. And I, and I want to talk about that. But before I do... Mm -hmm. So you're in a field that focuses on aging patients and also their families. So for you personally, Sharon, as a person who is aging, gracefully, by the way, and, <laughs> uh, and also I know 
with an older mom. What is that juggling act for you between the extraordinary science uh, that you perform and then the very personal aspects of this and how you see it played out on the canvas of your own life and family? Mm. Yeah, so I am truly in that sandwich generation, right? Still raising my kids. And then now I've had to go, as you said, into the caregiver role for my 92-year-old mother. And that's been an incredible challenge during COVID. I talk to my mother several times a day. And, you know, today I'm trying to arrange for the podiatrist to get there to, <laughs> you know, so yeah, I'm living it, right? But it's so uh, funny. I was talking to about three or four of my colleagues who are all geriatricians struggling with their elderly moms. Mm. <laughs> and it Sounds seems like a TV show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the real geriatricians <laughs> of Newton. <laughs> and um, and to a person they said, Oh my goodness, being a geriatrician doesn't prepare you at all for dealing with the aging of your own mother. <laughs> And it's really true. Like you have all this training, you have all this expertise, you can help your patients, but somehow, you know, your mom won't listen, <laughs> your mom won't <laughs> take any of your advice. They care right. not that you're well-respected in your field, right? <laughs> like, Right, you're still the kid. You're the kid and they're going to yes. ignore you and not do anything. So, yeah, so it's kind of a, a co comedic performance there. It is. It's yeah. so ironic. But were you asking about the larger question of how I view aging through? Well, yeah. So let's, let's move over in that direction because okay. I know that as the population of our country ages, as the baby boomers are uh, officially I guess according to the AARP, I think we got we get the card when we're fifty. I think so. They, they really start at young, but you know, uh, people who are mid sixties going to Medicare, et cetera. It's, it's a bigger and bigger and bigger number, and I wonder the extent to which you think the culture is prepared for what the the deeper implications are of an aging population. Mm. Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And I have to say that with the experience of the last almost two years, we've gone through COVID and we've seen the incredible mortality and frankly, you know, mistreatment of older adults during the pandemic. And it's exposed, right, so much ageism in our healthcare system, that has really been a shock and a devastation to our field. And yet it was also energizing and also an opportunity for us as a field to jump in and try to make changes. Even for a casual uh, reader uh, of the news over the past couple of years, Certainly, the devastation uh, of COVID on um, older adults and the catastrophe in certain communities, uh, nursing homes, mm -hmm. uh, retirement uh, complexes. Why did it all end up being so horrible? What what went wrong? What was 
attitudinally and institutionally? Yeah, so many things, right? So many things. I can highlight just a few of them. So the nursing homes and assisted living and retirement communities, you know, they they were ill-equipped to deal with a highly infectious virus with a high fatality rate. They didn't have protective equipment. They didn't have adequately trained staffed staff to deal with, you know, the infection control procedures that were needed. You know, they were understaffed, frankly, to be able to deal with this. The other problem that happened is as people got sick and were sent to emergency rooms, emergency rooms were not testing them for COVID and sent them right back because older adults present atypically. They don't present Mm. typically. Another distinction why we need geriatricians and geriatric trained staff everywhere. So they don't present classically with necessarily with high fever and cough. You know, they were presenting with confusion, with falls, with nausea, with, you know, different symptoms. And so they didn't get tested and they got sent right back to spread the infection at Mm -hmm. their facility. And then Unfortunately, without the protective equipment at those facilities, without the precautions, I mean, I worked at several facilities where they literally did not have enough masks for staff. Talk about how basic, right? And so Mm. staff were getting sick one after another, not only the patients. And then knowing what to do immediately, even if you knew what to do, It was impossible to put it into place. So many facilities have congregate meals, right? Which means everyone eats together in a small space, right? So even if you had masks for everyone, you can't feed someone with a mask. And so in order to change that on a dime, you had to have space. You had to have staff, right? You had to have a way to do one-on-one meals with everyone. Yeah. facilities just weren't equipped to do that. But I have to say, I witnessed tremendous innovation and people rising to the occasion, you know, volunteering to come in and, you know, feed patients one-on-one, just a tremendous outpouring of, you know, both trained and volunteer staff to help But I think those were some of the failings. Another thing that we saw as ICU beds became completely full is that actual care began to be rationed by age. And so if you were over the age of 70 in some states, you were not offered a ventilator or intensive care, even if you needed it. And this was called crisis standards of care. And there was a huge outcry against rationing these things by age criteria. And so most states did end up changing to more of a severity of illness criteria and comorbid, you know, likelihood of survival criteria. But it took quite a while to get that to change. And there was still age-based discrimination on that. And so that was an area where I did a lot of 
speaking and education to try to get people to see that it wasn't fair, it wasn't right to do rationing based on age alone. You've written some really uh, passionate material about that too. So on this side, as if there's a side of of the pandemic, it kind of keeps on morphing, trying to catch up and it just keeps moving. Uh, So let's say uh, almost two years now, what kind of changes have you seen now that you think benefits an older adult population now? I have to say at the facilities where I work, and particularly Hebrew Senior Life, the care and the learning that they've done has been so outstanding, just breathtaking. And so they really have things under good control, I feel. I think we are in such better shape now in terms of vaccinations that are incredibly effective Mm -hmm. if people are willing to get them. We have treatments on the horizon that I think are going to really help. And we know masking and hand hygiene really help. And masking in and of itself can halt the spread if people really do it religiously and properly, (laughs) if I may use that term. (laughs) I think it totally fits. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we've seen a lot of improvements in large groups like the National Academy of Medicine, the John A. Hartford Foundation, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement are doing initiatives to improve quality of care in nursing homes and in hospitals in large part motivated by COVID and the need to develop more age-friendly systems, systems that really, you know, acknowledge and embrace that there needs to be a, a different level of care for older adults. Sharon, I wonder uh, how residents' patients fared uh, in terms of the extreme isolation that uh, was really seemed to be an essential component of controlling the spread. Um, so I, I'm wondering what kind of toll did that isolation take? Yeah, the isolation was heartbreaking, right? And when I think of older adults who were alone um, and in, in our facility, some had you know cognitive impairment. And we're all alone and could not get visits by their family. It just absolutely breaks my heart. And I know that I heard as I was doing remote palliative care during that time. And so I was speaking with staff and patients every day. And I know that I just heard so many stories of, you know, people lost the will to go on. They did not want to go on because they couldn't see their families. It was their one joy in life and they couldn't see their families. They couldn't visit with their grandchildren. They couldn't see their children and their spouses. So it was so hard. But You know, I have to say that the staff really rallied to make iPads available for FaceTime and um, the palliative care staff at Hebrew Senior Life were 
I, I just can't, the word hero doesn't even, heroic mm. doesn't even begin to describe them. They were determined that no patient would die alone. And so they, they made it happen. No patient died alone. But during that first pandemic, a hundred patients died in, in, you know, two and a half months. And so it was really hard to do it, you know, 24 hours a day, but they did. Yeah. But it was so heartbreaking. And I really, really, really advocated for families to be allowed back into rooms, particularly at the end of life. Right. And I really, sure. I thought pa- families would be able to abide by infection control procedures and by restrictions. And, and eventually now this has all happened. But at the beginning, you know, when everything was in a crisis and there wasn't even enough masks for the staff, right. you couldn't allow visitors to come in, right? You could understand that. But now it's so much better and visitors are allowed. And many, many older adults have learned remote communication, which has helped so much. And so I think that we've been able to make a difference there. You are in a field where there is this sense of, I'm afraid of getting old. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. So when someone says getting old is going to be terrible, isn't it, doctor? How do you respond to that? I think about it a lot because, you know, as you say, now that I'm aging myself, <laughs> my spouse and my friends, we're all aging and developing aches and pains and <laughs> the usual things that come yeah. with age. I know from my work and from my readings and also from my patients themselves that aging is not all bad news. And so, there are things we know actually improve with age. And so a a couple of them, and I'm really looking forward to this one, (laughs) is that many studies have actually shown that life satisfaction is higher in older adults Mm. compared with younger generations. And so older adults tend to report more day-to-day life satisfaction, less frustration, less depressive symptoms, less anxiety, and less worry than comparable cohorts, let's say, who are 20 or 30 or 40 years younger. And you know, I see that happening in my patients. They even say to me things like, you know, they just don't sweat the small stuff anymore, you know? Yeah. And that it's, it's so... Uh, refreshing. I used to do, when I was at Yale, I used to attend, which means I was a supervising physician in two different clinics. So one clinic was for younger adults. It was a drop-in clinic. Anybody could come in, and I supervised residents in this drop-in clinic. And then in the afternoon, I did the geriatric clinic just for older adults. And one day we had this huge, huge snowstorm in, uh, this was when I was in New Haven, gigantic snowstorm, I think like 
you know, 15 inches of snow type thing. Yeah. And it was still going on through that whole day. And in the morning clinic, zero patients arrived. They called me from my afternoon clinic and said, you know, Dr. Inoue, do you think you're you're going to be canceling your clinic for this afternoon? And I said, absolutely not because I'm not going to have any cancellations. And they said, are wow. you kidding? Because I guess every, you know, they knew about the morning clinic where nobody showed up. And I said, no, all my patients will be there. And every single one showed up. So, and when they came in, you know, Amazing. and I said, I can't believe you're here. And they said, oh, this is nothing like the storm of, you know, right. 1967, <laughs> you know, this is nothing. And, and, or they would make the comment like, are you kidding? I've been waiting to see you for s three months. I'm not going to miss my appointment. Right. So not a single one of like 15 patients canceled. I was hoping. <laughs> it, <laughs> of course, a little room to breathe. It didn't happen. So, but you know, they're just tough. They just go with the flow and they show up and they've lived through so many big storms before, right? This was nothing. So resilience. And then I think the other thing is that, you know, people really worry like, oh, I'm going to lose my memory as I age. Well, some cognitive functions do decline with normal aging. Like we all forget, right, where we put the keys. We all forget people's names, right? <laughs> that tip of the tongue phenomenon. Yes. And that's like normal with aging reaction time becomes worse. But many, many, many studies have shown that the thing that we call executive functioning, so this is complex problem solving, the ability to have judgment about difficult situations, to suggest solutions um, for difficult situations, that ability that's called executive functioning actually doesn't peak until our 70s. That's fascinating. Yeah. And so that's been actually shown in many studies. And that you can understand because that the executive function depends on experience. It depends on being able to pull diff different factors together and to weigh them. And it requires, you know, experiential learning and it requires perspective. And so, you know, it's really the elements that we think of as wisdom. So those yeah. truly do increase with age. And so, you know, we hear the stories in many cultures where elders are the source of wisdom. And there's a lot of truth to that. What a relief. Yeah, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So I think there are many things to look forward to. I do think there are, right, there are definitely diseases that increase with age. There are problems that increase with aging, like arthritis and cataracts. Those do come. But there are also things we can do, like exercise, right, to make things better. You know, I'm so glad as you're describing this, I think I find myself 
enjoying reading more now than I ever have in my life. And I'm wondering if it has to do with an increasing capacity to take in more of the nuances mm-hmm. of the novel itself. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure why, but I hadn't really made a connection between aging and the particular enjoyment of you know, reading a good book or listening to music. But uh, maybe that's part of uh, a larger phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful to think about. And I was yeah. reading it's an interview with a famous writer, but I can't remember who. But they were relaying reading the same book when they were in college and then now in their mm. 70s or 80s. And what a different perspective and enjoyment they had in reading that exact same work and how different it was in the mm-hmm. way they were able to understand it. So I think that is resonating, right, with what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. I, I, I wanted to make sure um, I asked you about uh, this particular work that you're doing as it relates to delirium in post-op uh, older adults. What's the problem you're seeking to solve? Yes. So, so delirium, to let everybody know, because it's not a condition that I would say the broader population knows about, it's an acute confusional state, meaning it comes on suddenly, tends to be much more frequent in older adults, although it can happen in any, at any age, truly. And there is delirium even seen in children, but it tends to be more frequent in older adults. And it tends to accompany or occur in the face of severe illness, such as intensive care unit type illness, following surgery, or in the hospital when someone is quite ill and needing treatment. It's also seen in nursing homes and in end-of-life care as well as, you know, settings where it's more frequent. And I became interested in this condition really early on when I was just starting out as a doctor. And I saw older adults come to the hospital and they were functioning fine when they came in. And then they got very confused under my watch, so to speak. And then they ended up not doing well. And, you know, when you're a new doctor, you feel so responsible. And so I began asking everyone, all the higher-ups and my supervisors, well, what's going on with these older adults who come in the mm-hmm. hospital and get really confused and they're not doing well. They're going to the ICU or they're in some cases even dying. And every one of them said to me different versions of, Sharon, don't worry about that. That just happens to older people when they come to the hospital. It just happened. Yeah. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. I kept saying, this it just happens? Why does it just happen? Yeah. Like, should it be okay? You know? And so 
after this, my first intensive month of being a medical attending, the first time I was a medical attending, and so I felt so responsible. So there were six patients in particular that developed this condition, and I decided it just didn't feel right to me. So I went down into medical records and pulled up their six feet of charts, all in paper form in those days. Of course. And I went through it and made diagrams and graphs of everything we did, the doctors, to those patients, every medication, every procedure, every abnormal lab value. I just wrote everything down. And I concluded that we contributed to that delirium by immobilizing patients, by giving too many sedating drugs or drugs that were interacting with each other, by not paying attention to kidney and liver function, by not getting people up and out into chairs and making sure they were eating and drinking and walking and et cetera. And so it launched my career. And I began speaking out that it's not okay for older adults to come into the hospital and get delirious. It's not okay. And I was the only one, (laughs) Rabbi, for the longest time. But now I'm really proud to say that it's a field. What pushed it over, Sharon? How did this change occur? I wore them down, Rabbi. (laughs) (laughs) See, you you, you shine so beautifully, but you could be relentless. (laughs) I'm relentless. So I developed an instrument, a tool that doctors and nurses can use to identify delirium. It's short and simple. It's called the Confusion Assessment Method or the CAM. And it's now used in thousands of hospitals around the world. So there's a way to recognize delirium. And I published on the risk factors for delirium. I published on how you can prevent these risk factors. And yes, if you prevent them, you can prevent delirium from happening. Mm. And then I developed a program, a hospital program called HELP, the Hospital Elder Life Program. And that's been disseminated to hundreds of hospitals around the world. And I just kept writing about it, talking about it, showing people that we could make a difference, and training people, right? I've trained hundreds of people in delirium, so they're all now believers (laughs) and spreading the word. And so now there's literally probably hundreds or thousands of people working on delirium around the world. Amazing and trying to make a difference. And so my program project, the big project that you mentioned, um, the elective surgery project, that was the first time the NIH National Institutes of Health funded a program project on delirium. And so I'm very proud of that because it really recognizes delirium as a real thing, right? A real entity that needs to be understood. And we're hoping to really try to understand the pathophysiology, like how delirium comes to be. Mm-hmm. And then if we can understand it at this much more molecular and you know cellular level, then we can find good treatments. And the programs I developed helped, helped to prevent delirium from occurring but you know there's no good treatments once it develops 
there is no good answer about what to do. Nothing's been effective. There have been many clinical trials that have tried, but I have hypotheses about why we haven't been able to be effective yet with treatment. I think it needs to be much more customized and individualized, and it's harder to get people out of it than prevent it from occurring in the first place. Right. Sharon, I, I had a list of about 50 questions. <laughs> I got the number three. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this just means that I, I, uh, I hope that we'll be able to do part two. Sharon, your love for your work and your compassion really uh, comes through in your descriptions of the, the work you're doing. And I know I speak for all of the congregation when I say how lucky we are that you are a member of the family. Thank you so, so much for taking the time. And uh, I wish you uh, continued uh, good health and success with this amazing work that you're doing. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you so much. And thank you for paying attention to this really important area. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate having a chance to chat with you. You're welcome. Find all of our episodes on BethAvodah.org or on podcast sites everywhere.